So you're just like me with your coffee breaks. If I don't stop you, you just don't stop. Unless I stop to think I need to stop talking, I just keep talking. Same with coffee breaks. Hallelujah. Let's go for this. In the Gospels, why did Jesus heal people? The overwhelming evidence in much of the Gospels is that he did it simply because he had compassion. Miracles were not, you know, again, sometimes miracles authenticate the preacher. Well, in the case of Jesus, yes. But where I'm going with this is Jesus healed people because he had compassion. And that's an important principle. Now, here's a question. Now that Jesus has ascended, is he any less compassionate? As he somehow that ministry of compassion stopped because he's now ascended? I don't think so. His character is the same. In his earthly life, he reflected the heart of God, and now he needs workers like you and me to continue this work going on. We're to follow his example. Again, a lot of times we come to this question with, with, with basic ignorance in our hearts. There's some questions like this. If we believe that God heals the sick, then why don't we go to the hospitals and clear them all out? And that question has been asked. If there really are gifts of the Spirit, then why don't we just go ahead and do that? But such a question reveals ignorance of the person who asked the question, because I could say the same about Jesus. Why didn't Jesus heal everybody? Why didn't he clear all of Israel out of sickness? He didn't. There are times when there were great healings of entire villages, and there are times when he only went to one person around the pool of Bethesda. To ask that question, why don't you just go clear out all the hospitals, is to show great ignorance of even what Jesus did. It's just a, a non, non-issue. No gift of the Spirit is automatic. If I have been given a gift of miracles, it does not mean I can manifest that gift at my will at any time. That is just ignorance to think that it happens that way. I have to be led by the Spirit follow the voice of the Holy Spirit in all operations of any gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not mine to command at my will. You know, I can speak in tongues at will. It's a gift under my authority. But if, if I see a sick person, if I've been given a gift of healing and I see a sick person, just because I have the gift of healing doesn't mean I have the power to heal that person. That's just ignorance of how this works. There has to be a witness of the Holy Spirit for the gifts to operate. You know, and so when people make these questions, why don't you do this if you've got such and such a gift? Why don't you do that if you have such and such a gift? Those questions are just coming from, from uh, people who just don't know how this works. You know, and to use that as an example, even Jesus did not heal everybody. Jesus was led by his father. He was not led by a gifting that he had. He said, I only do the things that I see my father do. He did not work on his own initiative. Sometimes Jesus did not heal because of lack of faith. He could do no mighty miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because they just had a critical attitude towards Jesus. Who does he think he is? Don't we know who his father is? Don't know his brothers and sisters? And he could not heal anybody there. 
if the gift of healing is at work in your life, that does not mean it works at your initiative. But it must be the Holy Spirit's leading at all times. There's also ignorance of people who make these questions because they don't realize that there are various intensities of gifts as well. Not every gift of healing has to be on the same level as raising the dead to be considered a gift of healing. There are different anointings, different degrees, just like there are different degrees of teaching abilities, there are different degrees of operations in the things of the Spirit as well. And we have to learn to grow in these things, and, and so we can't write things off because they don't happen at the spectacular level that we've conjured up as supposed to be. It just doesn't work that way. But it is unfortunate that the gifts of the Spirit have been abused. Sometimes the worst enemies that Pentecostals have are Pentecostals because they just so show lack of character and understanding of theology and doctrine and their behavior is such and such a way, lifestyle, that it gives the whole realm a bad reputation and you just put an ammunition in the hands of your critics by, by some of these abuses and so on. But the fact that there has been manipulation, excess emotionalism, exaggeration and such does not mean there's not a genuine. We've got to find the genuine. Yes, sometimes we could be labeled as over excessively emotional. I do not believe the correction to that is stop being human. We're emotional people. It's not wrong to feel love. It's not wrong to be passionate. It's not wrong to have your emotions full of the presence of God. Our emotions can be fleshly. Our emotions can be spiritual. It's our choice. But the reaction to fleshly emotionalism is not to do away with emotion. The right response is be spirit-filled and let the Holy Spirit. If you take emotion out, do you realize how much of the book of Psalms you've just ripped out of your Bible? I mean, the book of Psalms is full of emotion. And we're to love God with all our soul, and that includes your emotions. It's not wrong to have emotion that's fiery and hot for the things of God. But we've been taught a religion that it's almost wrong to be human, to have emotion, to express emotion. Where do we get that from? Certainly not uh, from the Bible. As a matter of fact, I could say there's emotionalism on the other side, but it comes out like this. Sometimes cold-heartedness, unfeeling, dogmatic Phariseeism that loves to condemn and criticize. Folks, that's emotion on the other extreme. Their emotion is, I hate this. I don't like this. <laughs> Folks, that's emotion. That's just as much emotion as the other side. But they somehow get away with it as if I'm not being emotional. Oh, yes, you are. The heat of your anger comes up. That's emotion. There are, I'm going to give you five reasons why there could be the lack of the miraculous. Why we're not seeing things. I'll give you five reasons. All right. It is not because they don't exist. 
It is not because they don't function. It's not because God has withdrawn them. Scripture can give us a variety of reasons why there's a lack. Lack number one is because, you've heard me say this before, there's a failure to recognize that we are people who are already but not yet. It's amazing how many people have never heard that. Already but not yet. What that means is you're engaged to be married but the wedding hasn't taken place yet. It means you are saved from the penalty of your sins, you are being saved from the power of sin and you will yet in the future be saved from the presence of sin. That salvation has been initiated but is not consummated yet. Your body is not yet resurrected. It means that God is in the process of fulfilling his promises and they are not all yet fulfilled. They're in the process of being fulfilled. It means that the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated by the first coming of Jesus but it has not yet been consummated by the second coming of Jesus. It means that the reality of the future controls your behavior today. If you are betrothed to be married, but you have not yet get to the wedding day, nevertheless, the future reality of the wedding controls your behavior today. If it doesn't control your behavior today, chances are you'll never will get married. You'll be dumped. You know, the future reality controls your present life. The kingdom has been inaugurated and that we know in part, we prophesy in part, but knowing fully has not yet happened yet. So the failure to realize that we are already not yet initiated, inaugurated, but not yet consummated, betrothed, but not yet married, uh, the failure to understand that creates issues. Because what that means is that in the grace of God, some people are powerfully, miraculously healed, and some people die. Both are true at the same time. It is not because of a lack of faith or sin in a person's life or whatever. It's proof that the kingdom of heaven is not yet consummated, though it has been inaugurated. Some people are healed, delivered out of their affliction. Some people are delivered through their affliction. And it's up to God to decide which is which. And we're not left orphans. We can ask God what your intention is. When my wife went through cancer 15 years ago, I had to face the reality that she might have died. I had to go on a long prayer. And I set myself off. I just quit everything, canceled everything, shut myself off for 40 days. Well, as long as it's going to take. I said, God, I need to know, what is your intention here? Is she going to be healed? Are you going to take her home? Is she going to have to go through operations? What is going on here? And I believe that on the 37th day, God spoke to me. said, she's going to live but it's not going to be an instant miracle. It'll be gradual, but she will come through on the other end fine, which happens to be the case, thankfully. That was, that was correct. Some people are healed miraculously. Some people find grace for the trial rather than the deliverance from it. God knows what he's doing. 
all right? But if you are, your believing is everything is already, if you take that position, then you are taking the position that everybody must be healed at all times under every circumstance, and it is always a failure if somebody is not healed. And the problem is probably that person's got sin in their life, unconfessed, or there's no faith involved here, and it should never have happened. Everything's all ready to you. If you are a person who is not yet, then you haven't got a hope for any healing at all, because nothing is now. You have to wait till Jesus comes. Neither one is the true. The truth is you are people who are already but not yet. That explains revival. That explains why some people are healed and some people are not. Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith, gives examples of both kinds of faith. It gives examples of people who had grace to be delivered from situations. And it shows examples of people being given grace to go through situations. They're both there in Hebrews chapter 11, if we would read it. And the failure to understand the already but not yet tension of the New Testament um, is God doesn't heal everybody. There's not miracles handed out to everybody. God knows what's best. And so it takes sensitivity. All right? So if a person is not healed, it doesn't mean that God has withdrawn the gift of healing from the church. It just means we're not at the appearing of Jesus yet. And God, in his wisdom, knows. The second reason I'll give you why things don't happen is because in times of apostasy, God doesn't hang around. We drive him out. In times of apostasy, there are many examples in the book of Psalms. There's Psalm 74, verses 9 to 11. There's Psalm 77, verses 7 to 14, that teach us this very fact, that when we choose to apostatize, when we choose to not believe, when we choose to be in rebellion, that miraculous ceases to happen. Psalm 74, 9 to 11, and Psalm 77, verses 7 to 14, that in times of apostasy, we just cut off the presence of God from our lives. It's not that God is withdrawing, it doesn't happen, it's just we've made that choice of apostasy. A third reason the Bible gives why these things don't happen is legalism destroys the ministry of revelation. Legalism and lukewarmness destroys the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 13 will tell you that. It's not that God is withdrawn. It's that we become legalistic and lukewarm. When we trust in religious observance, we have replaced personal trust in God, and our trust in religious observance means we have lost intimacy with God. We live by code and rules rather than by intimacy with God. A fourth reason we don't see things is because unbelief is the culprit. Jesus did not heal people when he wanted to heal them because they wouldn't believe. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says Jesus could do no mighty works there 
because of their unbelief, talking about his own hometown of Nazareth. Jesus obviously did respond to faith. A fifth reason, I would say, we, we don't see things is because when we lack passion, faith becomes defective. A lack of passion leads to a defective faith. As I said before, there is nothing wrong with emotion. It's when it gets controlled by the flesh that it's a problem. But God created us to be loving people, to be warm, passionate, to be full of joy. Who wants to bring up a child in a cold environment? They want a warm, loving family. It's good to make human contact with people. It's good to have the hug. It's good to touch. It's good to have that human touch with people. But sometimes religion just drops all that off as if any expression is wrong. We need to, people of passion. A lack of passion leads to a defective faith. We have to have passion with Jesus. And we discovered in the Bible, all what we call the heroes of the Bible, they went into God's presence very frequently. They really did. Passion for God is the key to power. I think there's five reasons why we see lacks, and none of them is because God says they're not for today. That's just not the case. Jesus has not changed. He was moved with compassion before he ascended. I don't think he's any less compassionate now. He just isn't. Miracles lead to glorifying God. There's no doubt about it. I think we need more miracles. I don't know about you. I think we could use some more, don't you? I mean, as I read through the New Testament, I have to believe these three things. I have to believe that God is able. Of course he is. I also have to believe that God is willing. Of course he is. And I have to believe that everything is possible. Because the Gospels teach that. You know, God is able, God is willing, and there is nothing that is impossible. And I need to take that approach as I read the scriptures. Let's now focus on specific scriptures that the reformers and people since the Reformation have used to try to prove that these things do not exist. Before we look at four specific scriptures that are used, I'm going to go to one that they avoid. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and read for you verses 3 to 9. Because they make a statement that is so plain here that I don't know how we can miss it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 to 9. Now, remember, Paul is writing to a church that is abusing the things of the Spirit. As I said before, Paul's answer to abuse and misuse was not non-use, it's correction. Now let's read how he gives thanks for the very things that are abused. Chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched 
in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. As you read through the whole epistle of 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of what I will call ad hoc teaching about the things, the gifts of the Spirit. There is no systematic laying out of teaching on the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not laid out in a systematic fashion for you and me. What is, is the best thing I can liken it to is you're discussing a problem on the phone with somebody else, and I'm in the same room as you, and I'm hearing the answers that you are given, but I have no idea what the problem is you're talking about because I don't hear the person on the other side of the phone. First Corinthians is a letter like that. You're getting one side of a conversation. And you're not hearing the objections or you're not hearing the questions or the abuses on the other end. All you're hearing is Paul bringing correction, but you're not exactly sure what he's bringing correction to. And so there's no systematic, laid-out theology of gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. What you hear is comment here and a comment there and a comment here and a comment there. And it's Paul responding to issues that are going on in the Corinthian church, and we don't even know what those issues really were. So we're hearing Paul's responses to situations here, not just a full-fledged teaching on gifts of the Holy Spirit. So our theology has to be picked up from bits and pieces here and there, and we're doing a little bit of guesswork of what what is he actually answering as he says this thing. And we have to try to piece it all together and come up with a theology of our own. And that's the task that we have in front of us. And it's not an easy task uh, uh, to do. We're not aware of all the facts. We're only hearing Paul's side of the conversation. But I do know this. The answer to abuse is not non-use. It's correction. It's instruction. Now, Paul reminds the Corinthians of their conversion in these verses that we just read in chapter 1. He's reminding them of their conversion. And it appears that their conversion was very charismatic in nature. Their experience of responding to the gospel of God resulted in the immediate manifestation of gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was not a secondary experience to come down the road somewhere else. Now that you've been saved and born again, there's another experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit you need to think about, as if it's a secondary thing. That really was not the case with the Corinthians. Their immediate experience of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ was manifestation of spiritual things. The Holy Spirit had so worked in their hearts, opened them up to receiving, and when they received, there was all kinds of charismatic phenomena that happened with them. It was just that way. And Paul talks about these gifts of the Spirit. In in verse 5, you were enriched in all utterance. What does that mean, all utterance? I mean, the, the, the gifts of speech, probably the tongues, the prophecies, and all of that. 
all knowledge, the revelations that, that were given to you, the revelatory knowledge of the gospel. And then he says in verse 6 that this is how our preaching, the testimony of Christ, was confirmed in you. This is legal language. This is, this is the language of the buyer and the seller. Have you ever made a deal and you shook hands on it or you sign a contract? He says, that's, you confirm the deal. You shook your hands or you signed a contract. The deal is confirmed. It, it's settled. Everybody's lines are, are signed on the dotted lines. Names are signed on the dotted lines. And Paul is saying, that's God's confirmation to you that he's received you. That's God's confirmation to you that you've been born again. That's God's confirmation to you that, he, that he's accepted you. And what's the evidence of it? You've been filled, overflowing with the things of the Holy Spirit. He said, that's how God confirms the transaction to you. He seals you. It is just not something you take by faith. He seals you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was normal in the New Testament. You read Galatians chapter 3, when he talks, when he talks about their initial conversion, he talked about in terms of when you receive the Spirit. Did you do it by faith or by the works of the law? He that ministers to you the Spirit. He that works miracles among you. And he's talking about their conversion. He's talking about the day they became Christians. And the whole thing is, in the New Testament terms, and how we've lost this emphasis, is to know God, to meet him, to respond to the things of God, to have your heart prepared by the Spirit of God to respond positively to the Jesus, to have your heart opened, to have that conviction. The, the natural result is the things of the Spirit are just automatically your environment. You're just birthed into it. Because this Holy Spirit that brings you to Jesus is a charismatic spirit, a Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a powerful Holy Spirit. And, and the conversions in the New Testament, and Paul is saying, at your conversion, you were enriched in all utterance and in all knowledge. And this is how the testimony of Christ, the gospel, your reception of the gospel was confirmed in your experience. Can we say that to our preaching today? And yet that's the New Testament over and over and over. And then he goes on saying in verse number 6 and verse number 7, verse number 8, he goes on to say, as your Christian life began in this phenomena of the things of the Spirit, these things of the Spirit are your gift not only to seal your salvation at, at the initiation, at the inauguration, not only do they seal them, but these same gifts will take you and carry you right to the end of the story when, when it's consummated at the appearing of Jesus. You are confirmed by them. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, you're, you haven't come behind in any gift and waiting for the revelation of the appearing of Jesus. And through the presence of these, this testimony confirmed in you by the things of the Spirit, this is how you will be confirmed. This is how you're going to be strengthened. This is how you're going to be enabled right up to the end. Because when you responded to the gospel in the beginning, it was the beginning. It was an initiation. Now you're going to get yourself ready for the appearing. You're engaged to be married. Now you've got to get ready to be married. Now you've got to go through the process from justification through sanctification to glorification. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is the key to the whole thing. You're, when you're justified, the Spirit of God came in a powerful way and confirmed that you were sealed with the Spirit, the earnest of your inheritance. Now that same Holy Spirit, with all his vibrant, dynamic ability and power, is to work in your life and 
and draw you to Christ and open your eyes to the Scripture and teach you the things of God and, and develop your character and your sanctification to grow in those things of the Spirit because those, that, that presence of the Spirit is what's going to take you to the end to confirm you and to strengthen you until the appearing of Jesus. And so you're not just justified, you're glorified. Those verses sound to me like we need the, the charismatic phenomenon of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. There's no gap and say, well, now that you started, we don't need this anymore. Do you read that in those verses, that it's quit? Or do you read that that powerful confirmation is to continue right till Jesus comes? What does it plainly say? Of course we need it right to when Jesus comes. Let's go to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. And this is perhaps the most famous verse, a set of verses, that people will try to use to inform us that there is no need for tongues or prophecy or gifts of the Holy Spirit today. It's the famous chapter on love. 13, verses 8 to 13, it says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Cessationists come to this scripture and quite and completely unjustifiable, they argue this, that when that which is perfect comes, that is a reference to the completed New Testament. That is their argument. Now that we have the New Testament in written form, the time for tongues and prophecy and gifts of faith and miracles is finished. When that which is perfect has come, the completed New Testament, there's no longer need for the supernatural witness because we have it all down on paper now. That is the argument. There is no need, therefore, for God to speak directly to your heart because all that he's going to say is written down already. He's not going to say anything else to you that's not said in the scripture. Now that the scripture is complete, this is the only way that God will speak to you. The idea is this, that the gifts of the Spirit help the infant church to get launched. The manifestations of the Spirit in their way of thinking is likened to scaffolding as we put up a building. Once the building goes up, you don't need the scaffolding anymore. You take the scaffolding down. Therefore, the miraculous nature of the Holy Spirit was there to get the church built. Now that we have the Bible completed, there's no more need for the support system of the gifts of the Spirit. That which is perfect has come in the, in the pages of the New Testament written out. That is their thinking. I'm going to ask this question. Who in the world ever came up with that? Because I would never get that out of reading the Bible unless somebody taught that to me. Because that's certainly not what 
anywhere close. Nothing at all what this is saying. And yet this is a key text that many people would use. Question. Was the purpose of miracles to launch the church? No. The purpose of miracles is to heal the sick because God's got compassion. If the purpose of miracles was to lost the church, what was the purpose of miracles in the Old Testament? They weren't launching any church back then. No. The truth is that God is compassionate and desires to deliver those who are oppressed. The context of 1 Corinthians 13 is the love of God. Love never fails. Love is perfect. Love will never end, but one day the manifestations of the Spirit will end. The question is, when is that going to be? To me, the answer is so simple that I can't believe people stumble over this. When will there be no need for healing the sick? When there aren't any sick. And when is that going to be? When you've got resurrected bodies. When is that which is perfect has come? Of course the gifts of, of healing the sick will be done away with because there won't be any sick. When will the word of knowledge be done away with? When will you know everything? When will the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea? Of course you don't need a word of knowledge because you know everything. When is that which is perfect? When does that come? It is not at all a reference to the New Testament being written down for us. It is a reference to the appearing of Jesus. What people do is they take this verse, but when I was a child, I understood as a child. And they were saying, their, their analogy says this, that if I go with things of the Spirit today, I'm being childish. Because when the church was infant, it had to use gifts of the Holy Spirit because that's how we deal with children. But now we're mature people. We've got the Word. And God has done away with the childishness, and now it's all we've got the Word. And so their definition, if I follow the things of the Spirit and asking God to speak to me, I'm being childish. I don't think I'm being childish. I think I'm obeying what the Scripture says to do. But that is the thing that comes across to me. Paul's referring to a future time it says, when we see face to face. Verse 12, it says, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Um, excuse me, what does face to face mean? What does that term mean, face to face? Instead of looking at a photograph, you get to see the real person. So if I'm going to see the Lord face to face, can you tell me when that's going to happen? at his return, at his appearing. All right? The, the word face-to-face -face is actually an Old Testament word, phrase. It's used many times in the Old Testament. And it is the way of expressing how you see the Lord. It's seeing the Lord. It has the same meaning in 1 Corinthians as it does in the Old Testament. Moses spoke to God face-to-face. -face. All right? And it's used many times in the Old Testament. So here's the problem. If we believe the tongues and prophecy are done away with because we have the Bible, how do you justify that knowledge is not done away with? Because those three 
stand or fall together. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. So if we're going to do away with tongues and prophecy, should we do away with knowledge at the same time? Or why do you say natural gifts? And they start making distinctions here. Well, this is a spiritual gift and this is a natural gift. Spiritual gifts are gone, but knowledge is a natural gift. Excuse me, since when is knowledge a natural gift? That is total ignorance. A word of knowledge is not a natural gift. A word of knowledge is, have you ever had this experience you don't understand something and one day the light bulb comes on and you go, why didn't I ever see that before? Now it makes, now it makes, why didn't I ever, and it's so simple and so clear because now you get it, you see. You don't know how to explain it, but I just know. That's word of knowledge. Is that natural? Or is that a working of the Holy Spirit? When it says in Jesus, open their minds so they could understand, that's supernatural. And so we even change the definition as if knowledge is, is something that's just academic study. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word knowledge. It's, it's, it's not academic study where you don't even have to be saved to understand the Bible. You don't even have to be saved to understand theology. You can go to seminary, unsaved state, and come out with straight A's. doesn't mean you've got knowledge. Knowledge is when the revelation hits your conscience and it transforms you from within because it's life and it's real and you're hearing the voice of God and your life is being transformed by what you know. That's knowledge. That's the word of knowledge. But we even change the definition of words here to, to suit our case. Um, anyway, knowledge doesn't pass away and neither do tongues and neither do prophecy until Jesus comes. Because right now we know in part, we prophesy in part. Who needs the stars when you've got the sun? When the sun's not shining, you need the stars. But when the sun comes out, there's no need for stars. When Jesus comes and you get resurrected bodies, there's no need for gift of healing. When the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, there's no need for word of knowledge. These are just temporary, in part, things until the fullness of what they stand for come forward. In the words of Hebrews 6, we are tasting the powers of the world to come. When these things are done away, you know, that which is in part will be done away, verse number 10. What does the word done away with? If I was to give you some definitions, it means to render idle, to cause to be unemployed, to be inactive, to be inoperative, to deprive a force of power. When all, does all this happen? Well, it's interesting that the Greek word that's, that's has done away is used many times in the Corinthians. It's used in chapter 128 when it says that God will bring the rulers of this world, bring them to naught. It's used in chapter 6, or chapter 2 and verse 6, that the powers come to nothing. It's used in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when it says Christ will put down all rule and authority when he comes back. It's used in chapter um, 15 and 26, where it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, when does that happen? When is death done away with? When? 
at the appearing of Christ. When does all this passing away happen? I mean, read the context of all of 1 Corinthians. It all happens at the appearing of Jesus. So when are the gifts of the Spirit going to finish? At the appearing of Jesus. Why? Because the sun has come and you don't need the stars anymore. It's very simple. So how we read into that, this other stuff, that they're passed away now that we have the Bible, uh, is just, to me, it's, it's beyond ludicrous. And yet this is a, a key text that people are using to say we, these things have passed away. 1 Corinthians 7.31, the same word is used, the fashion of this world is passing away. What we do have in the gift of the Spirit is that the future is breaking into our present. Just like the, if you have an engagement ring on your finger, the future reality of your wedding and your future married life is already affecting you before you're married. The future is already dictating your life today. The Holy Spirit is, is, is the key ingredient to your future. It absolutely is. But you don't have to wait to get there to get the help of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes to us in our present existence. We're tasting the powers, and it, it gives us the appetizer. It makes us hungry for more. And as the Holy Spirit has come to us to take us to the future where the Holy Spirit brings us to a perfection. It's very simple. Very simple. And that's what the scripture is actually teaching. A second scripture that is used is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20. This is a common one that is used. And Ephesians 2, 20 talking about the church says this having been built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone people look at this verse and say the ministries of apostles and prophets are only for the foundation not for the building itself apostles and prophets are only foundational now that the foundation of the church has been written in the pages of scripture and the doctrine and the gospel established of what it is, there is no more need for apostles and prophets, that they are foundational only, based upon Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. There's a couple of problems with that. Well, there's more than a couple of problems with that kind of thinking. First of all, it is a wrong assumption that they're bringing to this verse that the purpose of an apostle or a prophet was to write scripture. That's a wrong, wrong thought they even bring into the story. The purpose of this passage has nothing to do about apostles or prophets being withdrawn or any supernatural gifts of the Spirit being withdrawn. The context of Ephesians 2 is the discussion of the equality of Jews and Gentiles in the one body of Christ. Bring the proper context to the scripture. Nothing to do about whether things are temporary or long-term. The topic is, are Jews and Gentiles one in the body of Christ? Let's read the right context here. All right. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. 
to try to introduce any other agenda into this, these, this verse is a blatant distortion of the scriptures. If the ministry of the apostle and prophet was solely foundational and no longer needed now that the doctrinal foundation has been laid, if that is true, then I'm going to ask this question, then what are we going to do about the ministry of Jesus? And his ministry was also foundational. Has his ministry quit as well as the apostles and the prophets? Wasn't it Christ who laid the foundation to the apostles and the prophets? The text here is stating that God's house is growing in Christ and it's being built by the activity of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is all about. The house is growing today. Let's not leave the foundation in a different age altogether. Um, why later in Ephesians chapter 4, in this, when he talks about what we call God gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers... Why do we think some of them are foundational and others aren't? Why can we drop off apostles and prophets as if they don't exist anymore and we only go with uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? And we also now redefine the pastor as somebody who has natural gift, an evangelist as somebody with natural gift, and a teacher is just a natural gift. Why have we taken those three things and turned them into natural gifts instead of charismatic abilities? If you've been, done any work of pastoring, you'll know very quickly it's not for the natural man. You are met with situations time and time and time again, and if you are left up to your own strength and your own genius to figure things out, and if you think you can pastor a group of people without supernatural help and revelation and asking God what to do about circumstances and getting insight and discernment supernaturally, then all power to you because I can't do it. Counseling people requires tremendous spiritual perception. If there's ever a need for words of wisdom and words of knowledge, it's in counseling people. Because they don't tell you everything, and you've got to cut to the heart of situations, and you just need to know the word of the Lord to speak to people. If you think teaching is just natural academic knowledge of going to a seminary and getting all this information, and all it is is this this dissemination of information. If you think that's what teaching is, you don't, you've never read your Bible. That's not what teaching is. Teaching is light bulbs going on. Teaching is revelation touching people's conscience. Teaching is enlightenment in the spirit and in the inner man. It's not just academic information. You know, why have we turned apostles, or why have we turned evangelists and pastors and teachers into natural giftings? They're not. They are not natural giftings. Nowhere near it. Why have we done that? If we start up a company, there will be your first board of directors. Will there not be? And part of starting up a company is you probably go to write your, uh, what do you call it, your, your, your business proposals, your, your um, ethics. What do you, I'm, I'm thinking of the word constitution, but that's not the right word to use in business. Um, mission statement, vision, mission statement. And everybody agrees to it, and, and you do that. 
And suppose you do this to start up the company, and it's good, and then you know how it works and so on, and you've got the vision. Now, 50 years from now, when the company is still going, does that mean the company dies when you die? Or does somebody else become the president of the company and carries on? They don't have to rebuild the foundation, but they just carry on with that foundation. Yes, there were original apostles and the original prophets that God used to, to, to pioneer the gospel of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But does that mean that when they die, there's no more apostles? Of course not. I mean, in recent history, the United States of America is a young country compared to the rest of the world. I mean, it's only a couple of hundred years old. And that, that amazes me because when some of my travels, I, I go into, like, I remember going into Ukraine many years ago now and into the city. And it's got a sign when you enter the city, such and city founded in the year 1200. <laughs> wow, that's 800 years ago, you know. Does that mean since the original mayor of the city, there's been no mayors? Ever since the, when the first one died off, there's no other mayors of the city? Of course there is. As long as the city exists, there has to be mayors. When the United States was founded over 200 years ago, there was the first president of the United States. There was the first cabinet. There was the first secretary of war. There was the first treasurer. There was the first everything in that original cabinet. They all passed on. Does that mean there's been no presidents or cabinet members since? Of course not. Those original ones had to write the foundation, the constitution, and so on, and work out all those details. And then everybody who came after them just, just kept on going with those, that foundation. Just because there were original apostles that had to pioneer the definition of what the work of the gospel is, does that mean there's no more apostles after? Of course not. You do have a prime minister in the UK, don't you? Or do, do we do away with them after the first one? You know, it makes no, no sense. You know, we just keep building on these things. The apostolic calling upon Paul was not just to have an initial revelation of the gospel, but his goal was to make it as widely known as possible. Those that God used to lay the foundation are not the only apostles that God uses. They're not the only prophets that God uses. Prophets in the Old Testament were not restricted just to writing Scripture. So why do we think prophets in the New Testament have to be restricted to writing Scripture? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That verse cannot be used to justify no apostles and prophets because the foundation has been laid. It's just silly. Another scripture that is used is Hebrews chapter 1. This one is used as well. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds people come with an agenda to that text and they read this into it 
God speaks through Christ in the new covenant. Therefore, he no longer speaks through the prophetic voice. In the past, he spoke by the prophets, but now he speaks by the Son in the new covenant, and one has replaced the other. And people use that verse in such a way to prove that we don't need prophetic words today. This argument is based upon the misconception of the gift of prophecy. It is based upon the misconception that somehow when somebody prophesies, they are adding to the scripture. Their argument is based on a misconception of what prophecy is. Prophecy is not writing scripture. It is not adding to the scripture. To say that out of these verses is a violent distortion of what it's saying. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. All right. If Scripture makes the gifts of the Spirit obsolete, then here's my question. Why does the Scripture tell us to seek the gifts of the Spirit? If Scripture makes the gifts of the Spirit obsolete, why do they tell us to seek the gifts of the Spirit? Isn't that a blatant contradiction in that way? Of thinking, The Son does speak today. How does he speak today? He speaks in a variety of ways. He is the Word incarnate. Absolutely. He speaks by the Scriptures. Absolutely. He speaks through preaching. Absolutely. And he speaks by gifts of the Spirit. Absolutely. The message of the birth, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the content of the gospel. The manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit is how that gospel is given to the world. These verses are not saying that the prophets belonged in the old covenant, and now that we have the new covenant, God speaks in a new way, different way. It just doesn't say that. That's just reading into it. Another one is Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, people appeal to these verses to explain why the gifts of the Spirit have passed away. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those that heard him? God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The flawed reasoning that some people bring to these verses is this, that signs and wonders only belong to those who personally heard Jesus and witnessed his ministry firsthand. It says, confirmed to us by those who heard him, God bearing witness. For those of us who personally heard him, God bore witness with signs and wonders. And therefore, Anybody who's going to be used in signs and wonders had to personally hear Jesus. And therefore, since that generation died away, then there are no more signs and wonders and don't need them anymore because now we have the scriptures. Can anybody see some flaws in that thinking? Is that not just blatant reading into that what is not there? First of all, how many books in the New Testament can you think were written by people who performed no miracles? 
Mark? Luke? Jude? James? Writer of Hebrews, maybe? Doesn't say that. I don't know they didn't perform miracles, but I don't ever see a record that they did. There's no record of them performing any miracles, and yet they wrote New Testament. Plus, it was more than the 12 original disciples that witnessed Jesus' ministry firsthand. Weren't there 500 at one point that saw the resurrected Jesus? Didn't Jesus send out 70 people who were not part of the 12 disciples who never wrote scripture? This scripture has no bearing on whether or not others who were not personal witnesses to Jesus could be used in signs and wonders. This simply doesn't deal with the question whatsoever. If on the basis of this scripture we're going to argue that the miraculous signs are done away with, then I can be just as strong in saying they also, according to that logic, also argue argue that the gospel is done away with as well. Because the gospel and signs and wonders are one package in this scripture. If you're going to do away with the signs and wonders, you do away with the gospel. They stand and they fall together in this verse. And nobody wants to argue that. You want to cut one part of the verse out and keep the other. Can't do it. Such a strategy as doing that leads to exclusivism. We need the heart of Moses. Would to God all his people were prophets. Oh, Moses, there's a couple of other people prophesying out there in the camp beside you. Oh, that should not be. I should be the only one who does this. No, would to God. All the people should be prophets. Let's have an attitude. Would to God, everybody be filled with the Holy Spirit. Would to God, everybody flow in the things of the Spirit of God. Would to God, everybody would know the flow of the anointing, and out of their bellies shall flow rivers of living water. Let's have a heart like Moses. Would to God, we're not here to be exclusive, and I've got it and you don't. Would to God, everybody. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh, your sons, your daughters, your children, your children's children, and so on. Because if we don't, we end up as an institution, not as a church. Rather than having dynamic life and a personal fellowship, practical fellowship with God and one another because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we become an institution. What to God we know the Spirit. Let me give you what I think are some unfortunate results of all of this. I'm going to try to demonstrate some common words that we hear today. And I'm going to ask you what you think this word means. Good Bible words. And this is going to tell me whether you've been institutionalized or not in your thinking. Are you ready for the questions? When I use the word doctrine, what do you think that means? Doctrine. What's the definition of doctrine? Fundamental principles. What do you think the Bible means by it? What does it mean? What's been written? I tell you all, you're a very institutionalized bunch, you are. 
what it means to the modern church today is a list of propositions or facts, a creed that we believe. Statement of faith. It means these are the things that we have come to believe as a result of controversies and heresies the church has had to deal with. They are systematic theologies, our doctrine. What does the word mean in plain usage in the New Testament? What it means is simply the teaching ministry of the church. That's all it means. Every time I'm preaching or teaching, it's doctrine. That's what the word means. It simply means the exposition of the word. It means the teaching ministry of the church. That's all it means. But to an average churchgoer today, when you say the word doctrine, they're thinking of what you have to learn in seminary, not just what the pastor is preaching. We've changed the definition. When we, so when we read our Bible and we see the word doctrine, your mind goes there instead of just the sharing of the word. Here's another one, faith. What does that word mean? Belief. Now I realize I'm speaking to a mixed group of people, so we might have different answers here. But to a lot of people, the word faith means uh, the faith or a creed to which I give mental approval, to which I give allegiance to a set of doctrinal statements. And orthodoxy is a matter of maintaining allegiance to these things. And that's called, to a lot of people, that's the faith. That's what they think of when I say the word faith. It has become the intellectualizing of Christianity, a mere mental assent to facts, and biblical faith has been replaced. Because biblical faith means you hear the voice of God speak to your heart and you obey it. That's faith in the New Testament use. You hear the voice of God in your heart, and you obey it. To a lot of people, the word faith just means my allegiance to a, a set of doctrinal proposals. I'm keeping the faith. Here's another one. The word. What do you think that means? The word. I was in a church building the other day, and behind the pulpit was, Preach the word. I wonder what it meant. What does it mean? What it tells you what it means to a lot of people, it means this. It means the formal, verbal preaching by the educated. The formal verbal preaching by somebody who's been educated. It is to preach the word means keep preaching our doctrines. Be faithful to our statement of faith and hold it up against all things. And when they say the word, that's what they're referring to. It has become mental assent 
about the right words of Jesus, what does the Bible mean when it uses the phrase, the word? What it means is that truth has been revealed by the Holy Spirit into your conscience. The word. Spoken by Jesus, illuminated by the Spirit into your conscience. That's the biblical definition of it. We've changed definition of words and don't even know we've done it. How about this word? Salvation. I use the word salvation. What does it mean? It is almost limited exclusively to means I have escaped hell. Exclusively. I have escaped hell. I cannot get away from this feeling that in many places that the whole story of salvation is to convince somebody he's going to hell, get them to reach out in faith to believe on the righteousness of Jesus Christ on his behalf and have the righteousness of God imputed for him and then spend the rest of your life waiting to die so you can go to heaven. And that's the whole of salvation is you have escaped hell. Well, thank God for escaping hell. I don't want to go there. But what does it mean in the New Testament? It means the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And the kingdom comes in power to heal and to deliver and to displace the powers of darkness. What we have now is the message that the kingdom of heaven has been arrived, has been reduced and replaced with this concept of a personal salvation so that I can go to heaven. Well, thank God salvation includes that. But to narrow it down to that is a gross distortion of Scripture. Here's another one. What does this word mean? The new covenant. When you hear that, what's your definition? New Testament. In many churches, if I ask a person, what, give me a definition of the new covenant, they would give me this answer. It is the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus has replaced the Old Testament sacrifices to deal with the issue of my sin before a holy God. Do I have trouble with that? Sounds good. I have trouble limiting the phrase new covenant to that though. It's much more than that. Much more than that. As I shared last time I was here, the new covenant climaxes in the bestowal of the Holy Spirit because the old covenant was not given with spirit and that's why it failed John the Baptist preached this one is coming and the climax of everything he does is he baptizes people with the Holy Spirit more about that later but the new covenant means this 
that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are enabled to have direct communication with God. That you can hear God's voice within your heart because he's taken out an old heart, given you a new heart, and by the pen of the Holy Spirit engraves his law on the inside of your heart, empowers you for righteousness. This is the new covenant. It is not just about the forgiveness of sins, but the forgiveness of sins leads to the reality of knowing God personally in the power of the Spirit. That's new covenant. Let me try another word on you. When I say the word grace, what do you think it means? God's favor, unmerited favor, and it does mean that. It's limited to unmerited favor or the merits of the shed blood of Jesus. Praise God for that. But I tell you, that word is used a whole lot more in the New Testament in a wider definition than that. What it means is divine empowerment in your life. All the gifts of the Spirit are grace gifts. Divine empowerment in your life. The power of God made available to you. That's the grace of God. It is not just God's favor for sins forgiven, but is the power of God in your life. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. You know, try one more word. See how we do with this one. Gospel. Well, I got myself into trouble over this word. Gospel. You know what it means to a lot of people? It means to present somebody with the fact that they are a sinner and twist their arm and scare them out of hell. And so that they, are, they make a prayer so they know they're going to heaven to die. And if you haven't done that, you haven't preached the gospel. You have failed to preach the gospel if you don't do that. Of which I've been accused of many times. When I preached the baptism in the Holy Spirit, people said, he's not preaching the gospel. The word gospel has been reduced to this notion of preparing people to go to heaven. At the cost, it is de-emphasized, and at times it has excluded altogether the present power of the Holy Spirit to live a victorious, overcoming life, to heal the sick, to displace powers of darkness, to encounter and to be ushered into the very presence of the living God as we pray and worship. That's the gospel. And all it has been reduced to is a sinner's prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. It's all about life after death. It's nothing to do with life while you live. We have changed the definition of the word gospel. I'll try. It's been reduced to preparing people to go to heaven. It's about life after death. It's not life before death. It has de-emphasized and at many times excluded altogether the power of the Holy Spirit to cause a person to live while they're living. 
to give them a victorious overcoming life, to heal the sick, to displace the powers of darkness, to encounter and to be ushered into the very presence of a living God as we pray and worship. That's gospel. So you look at these words, doctrine, faith, the word, salvation, new covenant, grace, and gospel. And how you respond to what you think the definitions of those words are tells me whether you've been institutionalized or not. Let me put it this way. Let me say it this way. It is possible for people to be trained academically for the ministry. And yet upon their graduation from seminary, they have no experience of spiritual gifting, no training in praying for the sick, no real passionate love for God bursting in their hearts, no dynamic prayer life that communicates with and hears the voice of God, and no ability for supernatural outreach. And they're trained for the ministry. Don't know how to pray. No mentoring in casting out demons, no mentoring in praying for the sick, no mentoring in a prayer life. But they've come up, they come out full of doctrine in their definition of the word. Come up with full of systematic theology, but no discernment spiritually whatsoever. Is that possible? Is that possible? That's sad. No discipleship training, even though they graduate. You know, yes, a love of scripture is prerequisite, no problem. We all have to be students of the written word of God. You know that about me. The Spirit and the Word will never, never disagree. The Scriptures are the Constitution. You know, nothing's ever going to change from this Constitution. I'm going to be faithful to this Constitution. Jesus was an absolute master of the Scriptures. He wielded them with authority. He taught their principles. He submitted personally to the demands. He taught others to people to do that. But in the days of Jesus himself, he had fights with Pharisees. And he would say things to, like this to the rabbis. He says, you guys know your scriptures really well. Or you think you know them really well. But here's your problem. Even though you have the scriptures and you've studied them your whole life, never once have you heard God. If you want to reference, John 5, 37 is where Jesus says that to them. You know the scriptures, or you think you know them, you're familiar with the scriptures, and never once have you heard God. Wow. No wonder they crucified him for making such statements. They they saw themselves as the sole interpreters of the scriptures, John 8, 47, but he says, you've had the scriptures your whole life, and you've never once heard God. Never once. True discipleship is both. True discipleship is you're going to know your Bibles. You're going to pay attention to the jots and the tittles of Scripture. You're going to know your Bible. You're going to be a student. You're going to be a lover of Scripture. You're going to pour your heart over the Scripture. 
And at the same time, what you want is you say, God, I want you to put this into my heart. I want to feel it. I want to be passionate about it. I want it to be revelation. I just don't want it to be a statement of facts. I want the truth of it. I want the power of it. I want the emotion of it. I want the spirit of it. I want it in my heart. I want to wash through my mind. I want to wash through my emotions. I want to wash through my heart. I've got, this has got to be personalized on the inside of me. I need you to speak to me. I need the revelation of the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to speak to me thoroughly and strongly. I need to hear the voice of God. I just don't need to be academic. I need to hear the voice of God. If all I am is academic, then I'm going to be superior to people. And I'm going to preach with judgmentalism and criticism with people and come across as legalistic to people as if I'm an authority over them. I need the Word of God alive in my heart. I need to know God. I want you to find 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse number 7. And you're going to see a parallel statement here. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 7. Uh, sorry, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse number 7. It says, when Samuel was just a little child, it says, but Samuel at that time did not know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Now, you've heard me teach about Hebrew poetry before, about parallel statements. You've heard that. I want you to notice this. What does it mean to know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? How many we hear that? You know what? You know, if I say that, here's another, when I use this phrase, do you know the Lord, what do you think that means? It means you're saved. That means you said a sinner's prayer. I'm sorry you could say sinner's prayer and not know the Lord at all. Tell me what he's like. If you know him, tell me about him. If you know him, when he talks to you, what does it sound like? If you know him, tell me about him. What's he like to touch? What's he like to be around if you know him? We've reduced the word know the Lord as I, I said a prayer. I'm sorry. Keep reading the verse. Parallel statement. To know the Lord means the word of the Lord is revealed to you. There you go. To know the Lord doesn't mean you've prayed a prayer. It means the word of the Lord has become revelation to you. How does that happen? Let's go to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 23 and see another parallel statement. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23. It says, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Parallel statements. Surely I will pour out my spirit upon you. Parallel statement. I will make my words known to you. How do you get to know the words of God? 
When the Spirit is poured out, that's his job description, to make you to know God, to hear his voice. To hear and to know the words is the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out on you. It does not refer to just saying a sinner's prayer. Have you heard God in the depths of your heart? What is he like? Knowing God is a relationship in which you hear the voice of God in your hearts and you are witness to his miraculous deeds. I have a list of scriptures here in front of me. If I take the time to count them, there's probably too many because there's probably at least 30, if not 40 scriptures here that just verify what I just said. To know God means you hear his voice in your heart and you're a witness to his miraculous deeds. That's what it means to know him. So the New Testament speaks of the power of God unto salvation and the kingdom of God consists both in word and in power and we're to minister in that power. And with that, I'm going to take another short five or six minute break and then we'll come back for our last session. All right.